Welcome back to another week of Latter Day Conversations here with Mike and Cade. Uh, we're very excited to have you guys here with us today. We got some other fun questions. Speaking of which, always, always, always feel free to reach out and in the forums below, send us some of your questions. What are some things you would like us to discuss? Uh, any insights or even just different angles you'd like us to take on questions we might have even taken previously? Uh, feel free to reach out. We are always, always happy to have more. Uh, but this week we have some fun more a couple more fun questions and this first one's for you mike uh, should you reject a calling from your church leaders all right so we we're just joking before this because i swapped the order of the question so i could answer this one first instead of another more difficult one that kate's going to answer later uh because this is a more of an opinionated one um you know it's not one that's like clear-cut doctrinal answer at least as far as i understand um but should you reject a calling from your church leaders? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give the exception first. Of course, there's some situations where, where that could be justified. I think generally, no. Um, the, the thing that seems odd to me is when we as members, you know, we, we you know, grow up in the church, or even if you don't and you're converted and you, you get to the point where you're baptized and then you make further covenants, um, where you're really committing yourself to God and the church. Um, and in the temple, you make covenants that even consecrate all that you have, all your time, talents, possessions, um, to building up the kingdom of God. And if it's really odd to me that someone can make that covenant and renew it each week by taking the sacrament and then um, reject callings that, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, are super petty, you know, like it's, it's really not a big deal. Um, it's not going to make or break you. Like you, you can do a calling, you know, you can participate and support. Um, and you know, people just, uh, casually reject them. So that, I don't know, that seems really odd to me. That's that contrast where you're making such a severe, um, or deep covenant to God of all your commitment and then rejecting that it almost seems like mockery to God or, dishonesty, lack of integrity. Um, I think it's pretty serious, even though it's, you know, maybe seems more casual, um, you know, when it's being done, but you know, if you're called as ward choir leader and you don't know music or something, um, or if you are called as, um, you know, a, a gospel doctrine teacher and you don't know teaching, um, you know, or whatever calling it is, if it's Relief society president or, or even Bishop, um, I, I'm struggling to think of legitimate scenarios where that's, where you really should reject it. I think as long as you, you know, you are physically able to, you know, maybe if you had some unforeseen health ailment come up that is really physically impairing you, you know, like you, you can't even um, talk or get up and walk, you know, like you're, you're on your deathbed or something. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can elaborate the exception scenarios here, but I'm thinking generally, no, don't reject a calling. I mean, and sorry, I'm, I'm going into a little tangents here, but I think it's important, like Mormon teaches, that you should give a good gift from a willing heart. And, um, you know, you, you shouldn't be giving this gift of serving in a calling begrudgingly. But, uh, you know, you, you covenanted this and, and give it with a willing heart. I mean, this is God's kingdom on earth. So build it up, you know, have a good attitude. Um, I think it's, it's so silly that we would, we would do that, especially those of us who come from pioneer heritage where our ancestors not too many generations ago gave up literally everything multiple times and lost, you know, their, 
loved ones, their family members, based on the sacrifices they were giving. And we can't even be the, you know, ward choir director or something, you know, so <laughs> it's kind of silly, um, but also sad. So that's, that's my opinion on it. Yeah, I am. I am in the same accord with you. I do think that there are some rare circumstances where um, it, it might not apply to you. Um, but I will suggest that is more rare than not. Um, I, I think what it really does come down to, just like you mentioned, I mean, we literally have made covenants to give our all to God. And it's a really sad step when you're asked essentially to give, you know, maybe a few hours of your time here and there for a calling, or some callings are a little bit more taxing than maybe several hours a week. Um, but I think when it gets down to it, it comes down to whether or not you're willing to attempt at least to keep those covenants, which you've made to give all of your time and all of your talents to God, uh, to the building up of the kingdom on earth and the establishment of Zion, which will not get done if all of us kind of stand idly by waiting for someone else to do the job. Um, and, and the fact of the matter too, is that these callings aren't necessarily just for the benefit of all of the others. Surely that is the intent of, of kind of the church is to help um, essentially the members of the church and those uh, that are not members as well. But it also, I think, through callings helps refine and reform us to a point where we can become essentially better us. We can become better people and grow to a point that we can't without those kind of responsibilities. And I, I don't know, I think actually the, the, the first kind of example that comes to my mind just thinking about this is uh, is Moses. Uh, kind of when he's called. And, I, and I, I think that sometimes we might feel like this where, you know, we have a calling and either we're too tired. I mean, you know, I mean, I know, for example, with you, Mike, you got two kids, you got a wife, you got work. I'm sure you got some extracurriculars you got to get done and you got to take care of the house. And I mean, it, it's a busy life, you know, and if you're going to school on top of all that, it just makes it even more hectic. And I think sometimes that we get so caught up with all these things, which truly do keep us busy and they are surely important. Um, but when we have these things that are given to us in a religious capacity and we almost shirk from that, um, we really degrade that possible spiritual growth that is necessary for our progression and exaltation. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm a firm believer that going a route without trying to progress and become like God will never lead you to be there because you're not on the right path. And part of that path is difficulty. It is straining yourself. It is pushing yourself a little bit. Um, it's, you know, kind of in a way like sports, I guess, where if you want to be better, you gotta, you gotta push yourself. You gotta exercise those muscles. You have to become familiar with, with the rules of the game. You have to become familiar with how to, to get things done. And, and essentially with these callings, not only are we not keeping our covenants, but we're not helping ourselves progress or those that we're assigned to, to help as well. Um, but sorry, I'm, I'm going on another tangent too, but going back to kind of Moses example, I think sometimes we really just feel inadequate. Like that's, that's a genuine concern. You know, I mean, I don't know if, I, I mean, we don't really have training when you're called to be a bishop or a state president or, or whatever it is, you know, you have a general handbook, but it's like, Hey, you know, here's a 30 minute meeting with a general authority or a 70 or, or even a, a you know, a local leader of some sort that kind of comes over, sets you apart and says, well, good luck. If you have any questions, let me know. And I, and I think in a real sense, we can kind of feel a bit um, overextended, uh, a little bit uh, overwhelmed. And I, I think that's perfectly normal. But one thing we have to realize, and, and going back to this example of Moses, I, I think that um, when we are given these opportunities and these challenges, that 
he is the God that has made our mouths that we can speak. And he is the, you know, God's given us eyes so that we can see and he can help us speak shortly in our callings and, and see exactly what we need to do as well in those callings as well. And if, if needs be, he'll help us get in there and to help distribute some of that responsibility as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I think that's well put. The, you know, the issue of a matter of convenience is not a, a just cause to reject a calling. Um, of course, it's going to be inconvenient. That's sometimes the purpose. Uh, you know, you've got to be stretched. You've got to be out of your comfort zone. Um, it's never been con- convenient to keep the gospel. I think there's been talks about that where they mentioned it in conference. You know, this is not an easy gospel. This is difficult. And it's supposed to be. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. It's not convenient. That's kind of the point. Um, and so if you're looking for an easy gospel or if you're calling to just be convenient, like, oh, you know, I like teaching, so... I'll be at the teacher or I'll just leave this calling to those who naturally have an affinity toward it. You know, no, like, you know, it's, it's sometimes uh, the person's called to be a teacher who's not naturally a teacher. And uh, I think God often does that with people. He calls, he calls the people that would be, you'd least expect to fill that role. Um, so, you know, if it's inconveniencing you, turn to God, you know, I want to say suck it up, but also like, you know, turn to God and to your leaders if you need to. And, and uh, I think you can get a lot of support and a lot of help and it can be a, a great experience. Consecrate your life to God. Um, if it's a matter of viability, even then I can't say it's automatically justified. I know that's kind of crazy, but if you look in the scriptures, how many times did the commandments that God gave people jeopardize their, um, their safety and well-being? I mean, we live in a very easy time in, in that sense because um, we're not being persecuted where our lives are on the line for believing what we believe. Um, some parts of the world, that is the case. Like in conference, that uh, African member who shared his story where uh, really, you know, life was on the line uh, for living the gospel and believing in the gospel. Um, and, you know, in war-torn countries. Um, but we, you know, if, you, if you're living in the U.S., I mean, if we have listeners who are actually in those war-torn countries, cool. I'm (laughs) glad you guys are listening. But I think most of us are living in pretty convenient circumstances. And so, you know, even if it pushes you, even if it stretches you and it's very difficult to fit in or to to accomplish, make sacrifices, consecrate. Um, Don't go through it begrudgingly. So um, last thing I wanted to say on this is I kind of want to still man the, the side of those people who may be rejecting. So I'm not so they don't feel like uh, they got thrown under the bus. Um, Although I think they kind of deserve it. But (laughs) so I think one thing that people might say is, all right, well, maybe I did make those covenants in the temple and I meant them, but I made them toward God. And my bishop or my stake president is not righteous. I don't have faith in them. You know, I don't, I believe they're just a fallible man. And yes, that's true. We're all fallible. So what do you think about that case? or Cade, where maybe, you know, they don't have trust in their leaders and they think their leaders are just calling them to it to, you know, maybe fulfill some kind of vendetta or, um, or maybe selfish interests, or maybe, you know, in, in the worst cases, um, you know, maybe they are uninspired and, and, uh, just really fallible leaders. And I think this is definitely extreme case, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand where people are coming from. So in those kind of cases where, you, you know, they're being tested by their leaders, uh, then do you think it's justified to reject those callings? Um, huh. 
I, I, I don't think it's, I, I think the, the reasonability for rejecting callings is even less than what I would, I mean, especially for me, I don't know. Oh, it's tough. I, I do see, I, I can see that as being a scenario. I do know of some situations that have happened that are kind of similar to that. Not as, not as, you know, vendative or, or vengeful or whatever, but. Like unrighteous um, dominion. Right. You will be in the primary. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, okay, here's how I see it. First and foremost, if that's the worst thing that can happen to you is that you have to serve in the, Police Society presidency or Elder Corps presidency or teach primary or or whatever it might be. You know, you're you have to teach Sunday school once every you know three weeks. I mean, is it is it really as bad as you're making it out to be? I I, I don't think so. I I don't know. I just remember back in like early church history when, um, I mean Joseph Smith he would test people pretty strongly to test their devotion. Yeah. And on on one occasion, um. Went and I believe it was either Hebrew C. Kepler or Brigham Young, but basically wanted to. He asked for the hand of their wife. I believe it was Hebrew C. Kepler. Now that I think about it, um, and <laughs> Hebrew C. Kepler was not happy about that because he loved his wife, right? And this was early days when uh, plural marriage was first being introduced. But um, essentially, he was just testing him, and and you know, and that's a very brutal test, and you know that that's a whole other story for another day. But I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I, I think when it comes down to it, you've made your covenant with God, which I do agree with, um, authorized by him. And, and we can get into this di distinctions of, you know, by, by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same, right? But if, you know, sometimes people are fallible and sometimes it is an uninspired decision. Um, that's just the reality of the world that we live in. Um, but I do think that God, regardless of what is going on with those authorities above you, knows your heart. He knows the effort that you're going to put in. And God, as President Nelson says, loves effort. And he really does. And sometimes it is those little sacrifices that, that you know, even though it sucks and even though maybe it's not where you're supposed to be or why you're supposed to be there, um, God knows the sacrifice you're going to make. And he knows the covenant you've made with him to essentially do as, as you're asked to do, right? To sacrifice in those scenarios. And I think in, in those ways, yes, for the most part, you should accept those callings as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, good examples. Um, and if any of our listeners, if your bishop asks for your spouse's hand in marriage, um, <laughs> talk to your <laughs> stake president. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah that's, a, that's a funny example. And one that I know does bother some people. So maybe we can talk about that in another episode. I'm sure it'd be good. But yeah. there, are, there are things like that where you'll see in the gospel. I mean, how do you justify... Um, Abraham being commanded to kill his son. Thou shalt not murder. You know, it's the same like, how could you justify Joseph Smith asking for a hand of marriage? He didn't fall through with it, just like God didn't fall through with, um, you know, Isaac being uh, sacrificed. But anyway, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting topic. Maybe we'll talk about of those like moral controversies um, in God's commandments, where sometimes mm -hmm. it seems to be, you know, really testing the limits of morality, like almost making you choose between God and good morals. But uh, I think that's kind of an obfuscation of it. <laughs> so, yeah. all right. Yeah, but but I, I do agree. I think, in, I mean, the exceptions to not accepting a calling are so few and far between. Honestly, I think the only way they should be rejected or at least proposed to be rejected is essentially if you are in sin without having disclosed that. 
um, and then disclose it. And if they still want to extend the calling, then you should probably take the calling. So um, yes, and that can happen. So yeah. So um, anyway, that's that's the only. I mean, realistically, that's the only thing I can think of of why I would reasonably reject a calling. Yeah. Okay. So hope some of you guys are offended out there. Um, <laughs> all right, let's uh, move on then. So, um, unless, did you have anything else on that, Kate? No, no, we're good. <clears throat> okay. All right. Um, why did Jesus say, this is the next question, by the way. Why did Jesus say that they are neither married nor given in marriage in the resurrection? Um, it sounds like he's saying that after this life, we won't be married to anyone, but we'll just be angels. And this contrasts our doctrine of marital ceilings. Good question. I actually went through this. Uh, I actually think on my mission because I was, I had this brought up to me a time or two. Um, Do you want um, me to read the verse, by the way? Yes. Yes. That's what I was just going to get pulled up so that we okay. could have it yeah. in context. Better do that. So um, the Sadducees came to him and they, they gave him this example. And they're like, so let's say, hypothetically, there's this guy married to a girl and he dies before they have children. <clears throat> the law says that his brother's supposed to marry that woman and have seed through her um, to carry on the seed of his brother. And, but the, the brother dies after marrying her and so forth all the way to the seventh one. Um, so seven men have been married to one bride, <laughs> seven men for one bride, kind of like the movie. Um, and so in the resurrection, who's going to be married to her? So they're just presenting this to Jesus and Jesus answers them. And he says, I quote, you do error, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God saying, I'm the God, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's not relevant anymore, but it's mainly just that part. Right. Neither marry yeah. nor are given and, in marriage. And then uh, Jesus' response is they are in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but uh -huh. are as angels of God in heaven. Okay. Um, so this is actually a really good one. Basically, there's a couple different dynamics to this, um, from what I recall. Basically, the Sadducees, first and foremost, don't even believe in resurrection, so they're just kind of mocking him. And this is not a genuine question that they're asking him, um, right? They're just kind of like, well, you know, you you believe in you are this, you know, the, the life of of the world, and you're going to resurrect everyone. So tell us this. So it's it's kind of a twofold question, um, but. Anyway, so um, the reason why his answer is in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are angels of God in heaven. Is first and foremost, um, he's speaking of they, which is these Sadducees, you know, people who did not have the Melchizedek priesthood amongst them. So essentially, these are people who did not have access to ceilings. And they, likewise, as they were married, were only married for time. And as such, that contract is void um, in and after the resurrection. So that's kind of the first part of the answer to, to what I understand of this. And then second off, um, there is no marriage after the resurrection. And, and the scriptures teach pretty clearly about this in DNC 131 and 132, where it, essentially it's taught that there are three degrees in the celestial kingdom, just like we have discussed before. And to enter into the third, one must enter into the new and everlasting order of marriage. Um, and that is something that must be done in mortality or via proxy um, prior to the resurrection. Okay. Well, yeah, this is, this is the question I didn't want to start with because I wasn't confident on my response, but okay. I do remember reading about this a little bit here and there and hearing quotes on it, but 
So the answers are um, number one, the people who he's referring to were um, not living the, the law of eternal marriage. They were living the law of Moses and therefore um, this wasn't really relevant to them. Is that one of the answers? Right, right. So essentially because they only had Levitical priesthood among them, um, which ceilings are of the Melchizedek order or of the higher order of the priesthood, uh, they did not have access to ceilings at that time. Okay. And then, and also I think it does matter the context that they are, they are sort of trying to, you know, trick him, trick him up with this confusing scenario. So it's not like he's going to be pouring out um, detailed, deep doctrine to them. You know, he's really just trying to, um, I don't know, confound them. So there's that. Um, but even if they were living the lower law, it doesn't mean that they, it's impossible that they could be um, sealed before the resurrection, right? Like they were living the law of Moses, but that doesn't negate their um, chance for being sealed before the resurrection. Am I right? Right, right. Because everyone will have that opportunity. Um, supposedly, right? Um, everyone will have who did not have the opportunity will have the opportunity for every ordinance required for exaltation. Um, but I, I do think that it's important to point out too that um, ordinances for proxy did not happen until after Christ's resurrection. Interesting. So he wouldn't have referred to that. Yeah, that that's interesting because there are a lot of parts of these doctrines that. Man, we just don't have much on, and it's so surprising. Sometimes I just, I have to sit back and just digest this, and wow. Like, I mean, we know about God, and we know about Jesus Christ, and, you know, we know these basic doctrines, but there is so much that we don't know, and it's it's surprising to me that God has, he's apparently content with, you know, us uh, having what we have. I think he would love us to have more, you know, if we were on that level, but it's just, I don't know, amazing to me or surprising um, that we have so little on some of this stuff, you know, especially in the Old Testament, um, like we'll touch on later about baptism. But, you know, some of these ordinances, we just know so little, we have so little references to them. And it's just surprising to me with how critical they seem to be to our salvation or exaltation. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think this kind of goes back at least a little bit. Um, to and, and you could argue even the Book of Mormon, but I, I do think that these doctrines are a little bit more present in um, uh, scripture that's come out in this dispensation. Um, but but I think going back to just the translation of the Bible, right? We obviously believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. But um, through all my studies, one of the biggest things I found is is the the, the reason why it, it's you know as far as it is translated correctly for the most part is less of mistranslation, though there are a fair number of mistranslations, but more it's the omissions. It's it's the things that have been removed from those sacred writings uh, that have come to us in our days. And and I don't think that's too surprising. Like I go through, the, especially the Old Testament, and I'm just like, there is so much that is is just not there. You know, I mean, you, t you talk about an incredible man like Enoch, right? That goes through and has his whole city essentially brought up into heaven. And we have what a few verses on him in the old Testament. And, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I, I think when you start getting into some of these details of, especially like you say, you know, I mean, ceilings are such a critical doctrine. Um, why are they just not there? And, and I think the reality is it's just, there's been so much that's been lost. Yeah. 
And, you know, oddly enough, <clears throat> although it's lost in our canonical scripture, you do see it manifest itself in even Catholic traditions or in, you know, like uh, coronation ceremonies and, and little things here and there in different cultures and, um, you know, uh, religious groups. You'll see little hints here and there. And you're like, where, where are they getting this? Because it's, it's not based on our canon or their canon. Um, but just, I guess, word of mouth or, you know, and I think these things are so sacred, you know, the, the stuff in the temple that there shouldn't have been any writ written record of them. Probably maybe it was just orally passed down and given. So, um, you know, that might be another reason why we don't have much record of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the thing is there, there, there's a lot of different, uh, dynamics to, um, the, the lack of scripture that we have, or especially on topical um, parts of scripture yeah okay so so the answer to that question is um even though he says oh and the second i i said the first one which is that they're living a different law than the one of celestial marriage um there's also the context i said and then the third thing is that um oh what is it that i was gonna say um oh yeah that this is referring to at the resurrection or after it um which it, things are locked in once you're resurrected. And this, this kind of answers the question of, can you increase to a different kingdom of glory after you're resurrected? And the answer is Cade spoiled for everyone. So we couldn't do a whole podcast episode on it. <laughs> the answer is no, you can't progress from kingdom to kingdom. Um, at least, you know, in degrees of glory, um, you can't go from celestial to celestial. But um, I think a big reason for that is that, there are actual differences in the resurrected bodies. Paul says that, you know, there are some bodies of, you know, the like fishes and, you know, others of different things. Like he's given this, this distinction that they are physically different bodies. And I don't think it means, you know, one looks like an alien and one looks like a human, but I think they all have the, the image of God, but they are, I don't know, as far as capabilities and other details, but the bodies are different. One has a glory of the stars, another of the moon, another of the sun. So the celestial body has capabilities or differences that are significant and that cannot change because it's eternally connected. Those, those elements and the spirit are eternally connected together. And so I, you know, after you are resurrected as a celestial being or a telestial or whatever, um, you can't get married after that. Um, I think the, you know, maybe there's a capability that can only apply in marriage to a celestial body. Um, but even then, not all celestial bodies can, will be procreating, right? Um, if you're in one of the lower degrees of glory, you may be a ministering angel in the celestial uh, kingdom to someone who made it to the third degree of the celestial kingdom. If I read that correctly, I know there's a tiny bit of controversy there, but I, I don't give much heedance to the controversy. I think it's pretty clear in DNC 132 that uh, that distinction exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I don't know, this seems to touch on something I... I Basically, uh, in DNC 128, it, it kind of talks about, you know, referencing other scriptures too, but, but it talks about our dead, you know, that our salvation is necessary to their salvation and, and vice versa, right? That we can't be perfect without that and, and they can't be perfect, made perfect without us. Um, and I don't know, I think that this really kind of reflects this dynamic um, part of the resurrection that just like you mentioned, you will be resurrected in a very distinctly different body based upon the glory upon which you will be resurrected with. And for that same reason, there is a, that, that is why we need to get this work done. That is why, you know, 
in order to be resurrected to a certain degree, you need to have these ordinances so that when so that you can be raised in that first resurrection, which is a big deal. And so I don't know, just there is some definite emphasis that we ought to put on to the <clears throat> work of salvation for those who have gone. Yeah. All right. So I, that's, I think that's pretty satisfactory. You gave those, those good three examples and reminded me of them and taught me some that I didn't, uh, didn't know before. So thanks for carrying our weight on that one, Cade. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, well, let's move on to this last question then. Uh, the question is, if baptism is so critical for salvation that we go to such great lengths, such as baptizing the dead, why is it never, if not rarely mentioned in the Old Testament? Uh, was this ordinance performed in the Old Testament? All right. So, um, you know, we do have the Book of Mormon record, which is an Old Testament time for a portion of it, and they, they are baptized. So, um, yeah, there's definitely baptism there. Um, even if you go into some um, Jewish traditions, you know, they do have the the pools or um, specifically for washings. Uh, there is ritual cleansings, ritual washings. Those are very typical, very prevalent in uh, Jewish traditions and the children of Israel and the Bible. Although um, many of those are a little different, you know, like with the sons of Aaron, you know, you wash their feet and their hands and their heads or whatever. Um, so I think there are some distinctions there and you can't necessarily say that was baptism, you know, because it takes a different form. And if the form is that you you only wash feet and that counts as baptism, then you may as well say, well, then you can sprinkle as well. And then you go on a dangerous road. So I think the form does matter, that it's total immersion. And uh, we see that demonstrated in the Book of Mormon. Um, and then John the Baptist, that's also, I mean, that's, that's right in the transitional period, right between Old and New Testaments, um, that he's baptizing. Where did he get that? Did he just invent it? Um, the way the Bible speaks about John the Baptist baptizing doesn't portray it as a novel idea, you know, of baptizing. And uh, I think it's fair to say that he didn't introduce this ordinance, um, that it has had presence before. And even um, Paul or Peter, um, I can't remember which one, they refer to when the children of Israel went through the parted Red Sea, um, that that was a kind of symbolic, I guess, has some literal significance to it, but that was a a form of baptism for them because they went under the sea level, um, which you know signifies the death, an important aspect of baptism, and then came up out um, and were all baptized as one. But again, you know that's not the same form of immersion, so I think that's significantly different still. So it is odd to me. I think flat out that baptism wasn't present everywhere in the Old Testament. Um, but also I think we, we lose a lot of mention of it um, in places where it was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting thing. I actually, I spent a lot of time trying to find references to baptism pre uh, new Testament and they are few and far to come by. And just like you said, most of them are allusions to acts that are usually similar, but not necessarily exactly like baptism. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, while that being said, I think in this case, I, I have to go with kind of the fact of, of modern revelation and modern scripture. Um, that while in the traditional Old Testament, there is little to no mention of actual baptism, if any, right? That just It's just not there. And I would go back to just kind of what I said earlier, that a lot of stuff has been removed um, from the Bible. 
uh, specifically a lot of the most important stuff, right? Ordinances and covenants. And going back to a little bit of kind of what we do have, like you had mentioned in the Book of Mormon, there is just repetitious um, statements of, you know, baptism. It's, it's all over the place, over and over and over again. And then if you go through, you know, the Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, there's even more mentions of, of these basic re required ordinances. And so I think in, in a very basic way, um, the only way I can truly understand the lack of this is because it's been removed. Uh, not because it was not existent or extant during those times, but because we just have no longer continued to keep those records till today in what we have now as the canonized Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, also, another reference we have in the Pearl of Great Price, though, is um, Adam being baptized. So that one is a good one. Um, let me pull that one up real fast. I, I think that one's a that one's actually one of my favorite ones. So in Moses chapter six, it, and I don't know if you've read this recently, Cade. So if this is fresh on your mind, but doesn't it seem like the Holy Ghost baptizes him. <laughs> um, I, I I know what you're saying, but he did not. <laughs> it seems yeah it's a little i guess it says the spirit of the lord carried him up and put him in the water mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of interesting so um anyway i like the reference to it because um let's see where does it say here so um so adam speaks to the lord and he says why is it that men must repent and be baptized in water and the lord said unto adam behold i have forgiven thee thy transgression thy transgression in the garden of eden Hence came the saying abroad among the people that the son of God hath atoned for original guilt. Um, so, you know, he's saying the reason you have to be baptized is because I have atoned and this is a necessary ordinance to receive ordinance to receive that. Um, so, yeah, and there's some more references there that I, I really do like. Um, yeah, here's the part where it talks about that, Cade. So, and thus, let's see. And it came to pass when the Lord had spoken with Adam, our father, that Adam cried unto the Lord and he was caught away by the spirit of the Lord and was carried down into the water and was laid under the water and was brought forth out of the water. So was it Jehovah that baptized him? Um, it wouldn't have been Jehovah either because Jehovah did not have a body either. So it had to be the father. But it says he was caught away by the spirit of the Lord and was carried down into the water. Right. I'll have to go through my notes again, but okay. I do. We can have... save that for another time. Yeah, that's a good one, though. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. But, yeah, let's let's throw that in the notes because I, I think it's kind of a fun verse. I, I don't know for sure. I'm not set one way or the other, but I, I remember reading that and being like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, but anyway, he was he was quickened in the inner man and um, then baptized by fire. So, yeah, I, I think it does have presence. I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but that's as Old Testament as you can get, you know, um, Adam being baptized. So, you know, you do have it. And I think here and there, it may have been lost and you see its presence. Um, and uh, that's kind of the nature of, of some of the doctrines with the, you know, the um, people of God as they wane in their righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I think um, that it, it's one of the hard things is there's just very little record of that, which you, which is very surprising because of the importance of ordinances, right? We, I mean, we place a very, I mean, not just important, but a, a critical nature of these uh, these rites, these rituals, right? 
uh, right? Joseph Smith talks about this all the time, you know, that in order to obtain, you know, the fullness of the priesthood, you got to do it the same way that uh, Jesus Christ did it. And that's by keeping all the commandments and obeying the ordinances of the Lord and, and so on and so forth, right? In order to obtain um, that, that status of being a joint heir with Christ, he says on one occasion, essentially, and, and this is a, a paraphrase, but it's, it's the same in, in content, but he says that you have to have the fullness of the ordinances of his kingdom. And if you don't receive all those ordinances, you will fall short of that fullness of glory. Hmm. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's a very interesting topic because in uh, modern canonized scripture from years now past, we just don't have a ton recorded on that. Yeah. It's interesting because it, it is conspicuously clear here that it is essential for salvation. You have to be baptized. Um, and you know, what's interesting. This is not exclusive to LDS doctrine or thought. This is a Christian problem, you know, to justify this because uh, Christians, uh, they don't get a sneak out of this. You know, this is not exclusive to us. Um, they also have the apparent, uh, you know, criticalness of this ordinance and, you know, have the lack of presence of it in the Old Testament. So they, they also have to wrestle with this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the ways we've talked about it is how I would address it. But um, it is still interesting that there's, there's not very much presence, but I guess that's, that's what we do with it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I guess kind of what we have to do with it, but um, yeah, the, the, the beautiful thing is that we don't just have to rely on um, notes of the past. Otherwise I think we'd be just as confused as everyone else. So. Yeah. So um, one quick thing, I, you mentioned this before, Kate, you said that, Ordinances for the dead, such as, you know, we're talking about baptism, baptism for the dead, weren't initiated until Christ was resurrected. Is that true? Yes. Yes. So do you have any ideas of, of why that would be the case? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, essentially kind of how it happens, I guess, um, and I can try to find some references and try to put them into the notes if you guys are interested. But um, basically when Christ died, we know that he went to the spirit world for those three days, right? And through teachings of the prophets, essentially over time, especially, uh, I believe Brigham Young's taught a lot on this, uh, Joseph Smith a little bit on it. Um, but uh, the spirit world was uh, sectionized almost, right? There was no bridge that uh, covered that gap, that gulf in between um, the spirits who had been righteous and, and received their ordinances, at very least baptism, right, um, that were born again. Uh, and those who were not right those who were wicked right that just as we always kind of draw that basic diagram of spirit prison and and, and uh in the spirit world and kind of that distinction between the two but it's uh, when jesus christ went into that spirit world he organized his armies right his preaching force essentially and bridged that gap and opened the gate uh, and turned that key so that uh, salvation could be offered to the dead and so it was since his resurrection since you know he visited that spirit world and and essentially turn the key of death almost, as it were, um, for those spirits in spirit prison so that they could receive that gospel. Um, and and I think to some degree, this kind of goes into some of the teachings of, of you know, kind of uh, the, the bosom of Abraham versus um, living in, in uh, what a lot of people call perdition or, or whatever. Hmm. So while that gulf was, um, was there and there was no way to bridge that, um, it was just, what would you say is impossible for 
the gospel to be taught so that people could even receive the ordinances. And that's why the ordinances weren't performed yet because they just couldn't even receive them. Yes. Um, and, and that's, the, the, there's a lot of teachings on this. Um, for the most part, they come from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Um, and it's really cool to kind of go through kind of how they describe this. Joseph Smith has two different sermons I can think of um, that he basically just kind of talks about this fairly in depth. Um, but yeah, so essentially until Christ went to open that gate uh, in spirit prison, there was no preaching of the gospel there. Um, and I'll have to go through and double check if DNC 138, uh, the, the, the vision of the redemption of the dead by Joseph uh, F. Smith kind of touches on that a little bit. If I remember right, it, it definitely highlights that fairly well as well. Um, I'll, I'll try to get that pulled up real quick. But yeah. But yeah. Uh, oh, sorry to interrupt you. No, but yeah, that's kind of, uh, as I understand it, um, the the gist of uh, the preaching of the gospel to the dead. Okay, interesting. So why couldn't, uh, I wonder why they couldn't just do the ordinance and have that ordinance just pending until the people <laughs> accept it? You know, like, <laughs> do they have to have been taught uh, previously um, before the the vicarious ordinances happen and then when the vicarious ordinance happens they immediately have to accept or reject it like do they have to be present during that ordinance and accept it you know maybe like um i don't know like assuming the the role that's being vicariously played out for them um i i don't know i know you know we don't probably have the answers to this right now but because that would make sense maybe of more of why it couldn't just be performed the ordinance you know even in the old testament then it'd just be pending until that bridge was gapped or that gulf was gapped. Right. Right. And so, um, as I understand it, ordinances in proxy were not able to be, um, done whatsoever until after his resurrection, until he authorized that to, to happen, right. Until he had turned that key essentially. Um, but yeah, DNC 138 basically kind of highlights a lot of kind of what I just brought up. Um, I'm trying to get it pulled up all the way right now. Sorry. My, my phone is going, about as slow as I am the day after Thanksgiving. So, um, it's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's one that hits home for most of us, but, uh, let's see here. One second. While you're pulling that up, I like that. So you mentioned the, the gulf between the spirit paradise and prison, or some people call it purgatory and that, um, parable that Christ gave of the rich man and Lazarus and, how the rich man was rich and uh, had all the luxuries in life. And then Lazarus was poor man begging at, at the gate with sores and the rich man didn't give him any food and stuff. And so when, when they both died, the rich man was in um, the prison and um, he's, he was suffering and, and Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, the paradise. And the rich man's just like, what does he say? He says, uh, sin Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Um, and the reason why um, Abraham says he, he can't do that is because um, he said, between us and you, there's this great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us uh, that would come from thence. So yeah, it's, a, it's an actual barrier that uh, cannot they cannot pass through. So that, I guess that reinforces that idea that um, spiritual, you know, progress in the spirit world was just totally hindered. It seems until the resurrection. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do have it pulled up a little bit. I don't have my notes super well. I have I have notes in like eight different places, which is not helpful. But but basically, <laughs> in, in this vision that uh, that he has, he he sees right a lot a lot of things. Right, this is after pondering, which is you know hint hint. If you look for Revelation, pondering almost always precedes it. Um, but he goes through and uh, essentially sees this giant multitude, and he says in verse twelve of DNC one thirty eight that there were gathered together in one place an innumerable company of spirits of the just uh, who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while living in mortality. Um, so just to recall, so he goes and he visits, there's just this, these, this one set of people, it's the righteous people that he goes and visits when he goes there himself. He doesn't actually visit the wicked when he, when he goes, right. And he goes and, and essentially organizes them and, and, and so on and so forth. And they're all filled with joy and stuff just to kind of see him. Um, and then it says later on, it says that there were, there were assembled, um, waiting the advent of the son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. Right. So these are still the righteous people. And, um, he, he's going to essentially give the good news that he is there to overcome death. Right. Um, and it, and it continues later on. It says, uh, let's see here. So it says he preached unto them, the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of the resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall from individual sins on conditions of repentance. Um, let's see here. And then it says, but unto the wicked, he did not go. But among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh, his voice was not raised. Right. And then it continues essentially to say that um, he goes over and, and, and releases them from these chains of hell. Right. And organizes his his um, his forces to uh, go and preach the gospel unto them. Right. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because uh, Joseph F. kind of says in these words, and I'd highly recommend if you've never really gone through DNC 138, there's a lot of interesting things that if you've ever wondered about the spirit world, this is canonized doctrine on spirit world, which is, um, there's a lot of sayings about it, but this is canon, which is great. Um, but essentially he goes out and he's like, he's really curious about all these, these, you know, essentially people who have been just locked in spirit prison for that have been disobedient their whole lives and are waiting for their final punishment kind of a thing. And he's like, how in the world is this going to happen? How, how in the world are all these souls going to receive the gospel in such a short time, right? Because they're only getting preached to right after. And, and anyway, and, and then it goes through and just kind of talks about this organization of his forces that he, he goes to do to, to go and minister unto the wicked so that they can receive uh, that, that gospel. Hmm. Yeah, and I always I always forget until I read that section how um, elaborate it gets, and it's cool because I mean this is pretty much the most um, recent can canonized scripture we have, right? Um, yeah, other than official declaration too, but yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll have to give that a read again too because I know every time I read it, I'm like, wow, I forgot that it goes this far. You know, I thought it was just simple, but but it does go into some cool details, so I, I really like that. Yeah, and and I think that's uh, one of the important distinctions. And I, as I understand it, um, receiving ordinances right now is such a critical time because we are nearing that you know last day, and we have so much work to get done. Um, it takes, thank goodness they're they're, they're cutting down. Well, it depends on who you're asking, but on, on the time for endowments. But we, I mean, we have to save our dead before <laughs> before he comes, or um, we we surely won't be saved ourselves as well. And so I, I think that uh, there definitely needs to be some good emphasis put on that. Yeah, agreed. 
Okay. Well, um, I think we've hit these questions well. Um, hope you guys enjoyed listening to us today. And again, like Cade said at the beginning, if you've got questions um, or, you know, if you want to help out, just, just come up with some questions. Think about it. Um, in your studies, um, if you have any questions come up, just, just send them our way. And uh, we would love to hear from you guys. And we will be back next week with another episode. Hope you guys have a great week until then.